Welcome, everyone, to episode 243 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're taking a pause to talk about one of the best-reviewed films of the year to date, and one that has been slowly releasing wider and wider each week as the summer has gone on. That is the A24 romantic drama, Past Lives. Before we get to that, however, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing? I'm good, Scott. Um, I think I teased this on the last episode, but um, was heading down to Greenville for mock trial camp at Furman. I know, very exciting uh, to all of our listeners, I'm sure. Um, but I am here now. Uh, it is Tuesday. We are we are in the thick of it. Trials are on Saturday, and uh, and things are going well. It's it's always fun to be back in Greenville, back on campus, and back doing one of the things that I love most, which is coaching mock trial teaching mock trial to to students so um yeah things are things are good with me and i'm off work for the week so can't beat that either off work and working love to see it yeah off I mean, working I, in one way and not i joke that. because i i don't really talk about it that much on the podcast but every february i also take some amount of time yeah. off work to go work something different so i can relate and i don't obviously i keep doing it. i don't really view it as work i enjoy it same as you do exactly. with mock trial stuff. So, exactly, it's hard to explain to people who you know are not have not sold their soul to mock trial in the way that I have. But um, sure, when you love it, it doesn't feel like work, and that's definitely how I feel in this scenario. Are you uh, introducing them to? Is it mock trial confessions? What's the Facebook? What's the Facebook page? Does that still exist? Yeah, mo- mock trial confessions. Uh, I haven't yet because that generally only applies to college mock trial, and these are high school students. So. I don't think they would get much enjoyment out of it, but I'm sure they will all discover it on their own time if they do uh, do pursue college mock trial. Do you think that a lot of these kids will? I mean, what's 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 I mean, probably right. I don't know. Yes. Um, again, I don't I don't know how much interest there is in all the details, but suffice it to say, things are a lot different than when you and I attended this oh, yeah? camp, okay. Scott, because um, now students are recruited from all over the country who are basically in the elite of high school mock trials. So everyone comes in with quite a significant amount of experience. So certainly you would expect that most, if not all of them will be involved in college mock trial as well. So um, yeah, that they'll get there. There, I mean, we watched opening statements today. Everyone seems to be very serious about this. Well, they'll need to lighten up. Okay. Have some fun. Just yeah, well, certainly there were there was plenty of that back in our time. But oh man, I, I'm not even going to pretend to have many memories of that. It's so long ago now. <laughs> Thank God, eleven years. Oh, yeah. oh boy, wow. That, oh, that reminder. Uh, you know, should we just delay this podcast one more year to get twelve year increments? Then I mean, eleven years ago, it feels like it's the wrong time to be doing a past lives podcast. To be honest, there you go. Yeah, if we could so, have done it after nine years, then we would have had a good like uh, before trilogy. Uh, sure. Yeah. There, but, yeah, yeah. We could have, I don't know. We could have had like some sort of like metaphorical d- divorce or what was it that that's the time between sunset and or sun, sunset and midnight. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or is it nine years for each one? It's nine years for each one, isn't it? Yeah, it's not. It's nine years for each one. Oh, yeah. that's right. Release date and like when they are actually set. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's as probably good a segue as we're going to get um, because. This episode's review is really all about past lives. It's written and directed by Celine Song. Past lives charts the life of Na Young, later Nora, a South Korean immigrant, first to Canada and then eventually to the U.S. in three 12-year intervals, as we were just alluding to. 
The story starts in South Korea when Nora is 12 at the time played at this time played by Sung Amun, a brilliant young student who has a seemingly close friendship with a classmate named Sung. at this point in time played by the actress's brother Sung Min Yim. Then it fast forwards 12 years to Nora and Sung as single 20 somethings in New York, now played by Greta Lee and Tao Yu. And finally, concluding after 12 more years with Nora, married and living in New York, and who Sung, recently single, still yearns for, and who Sung plans a trip across the globe to see for the first time in almost two and a half decades, ultimately crescendoing to their reunion and is ultimately an exploration of the life they maybe could have had if things had just been different. Scott, that's sort of the simplest and least spoilery way I could contrive of priming us for our discussion. So we'll get right into it. Did you feel that Past Lives joins the growing list of recent romantic and or family dramas with a profoundly moving emotional core, in this case, bringing to bear how even the most tenuous emotional bonds can send massive ripples throughout our lives and beyond? Or did Past Lives sink into a poorly pitched melodrama that slumped to an overwrought conclusion about a woman who has some regrets about the course of her life? Yeah, Scott, this is the type of movie that I look forward to every year um, because we didn't know anything about this movie. It wasn't really on anyone's radar coming into the year. It involves mostly unknown people, people, you know, involved in films like this for the first time. Um, I mean, Greta Lee is like a TV actress, mostly. Yes. Yeah. Um, John McGarrow's in like small indie films. He's a supporting right. role in this film, like in Kelly Riker movies. Um, yeah. And so, you know, but then it comes out of nowhere and it got ama- amazing buzz coming out of Sundance. It was probably yeah. like the movie most talked about movie coming out of Sundance. And it's continued, you know, at that pace. And um, certainly, if not the most well-reviewed movie of the year so far, like in the top three or four of that category. Um, so my hype could not have been any higher going into the movie because, you know, it, it had one of those slow rollouts that indie movies tend to have nowadays. And of course, I'm on the, the bottom end of the totem pole always with those. So I was uh, I was getting it late and then I had to delay it even further because, you know, I yeah. traveled on the 4th of July weekend and everything. So um, I was still not able to see it until finally this past weekend. And it was worth the wait, Scott. Um, I really, really loved this movie. I feel pretty much on the same wavelength as everyone else who has given this film a glowing review. It's definitely one of the year's best movies. And um, it moved me in all the ways that I kind of expected that it would. Um, I will say that, you know, you mentioned that this movie has kind of a pretty clear three-act structure, I guess you would say. Um, For the most part. The, the first two acts I did find compelling. Um, like, I was definitely, you know, engaged with what was going on, enjoying the characters and their relationships. But I feel like the third act is really where the shoe drops. Like, once we get to the present day, right, and Hayson is coming to visit. Yeah. Yeah that's when the movie really took on this deeper resonance that, you know, was what I was hoping for out of it. Um, I don't know if that's a minor complaint or anything like that. I think um, that was just something maybe which I wasn't quite expecting going in that it would take a little bit sort of to get to the really, really good stuff in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is kind of my, my overall take on that. But you know, once it does get to that good stuff, um, it, yeah, the, the way that it explores a lot of the ideas that it's ex- 
exploring is um, it's unique. And, you know, you do want to think about movies like what we were just talking about, the the before trilogy, uh, for sure. example, is kind of all I think any it's sort the closest of modern, comp. I mean, yeah, it, it is close just because of the, the plot in some sense. But I think like any modern romantic drama like this, like that is the pinnacle. Um, I mean, certainly I would say and maybe you would as well, Scott, but um, I think the before trilogy really just is the pinnacle for that sort of thing. And so it just it will, it will inevitably come up in any of these sort of films. But I mean, normal despite, people as well. And it's not a film, but yeah. in terms of, you know, works of of media, I'd say it's very. I mean, and we talked when we were talking off air because normal people, obviously, TV show we didn't talk about the podcast. Um you know, we talked about the sort of comparisons that we felt in it from the before trilogy as well. So, and I think that that, especially Act Two, reminded me a lot of of normal people and specific, like this whole idea of reconnecting, but never really feeling fully connected. And it, you know, inevitably not working. Yeah, out. that's what I was going to say. Is I think it. Yeah. You mentioned normal people. Like I think it actually is more similar to something like that than the before trilogy because. Um, yeah. I think it's really interrogating some of the romanticism of the before trilogy, right? Like, you know, the, that second Mm -hmm. movie, the spoilers, I guess, for the before trilogy, but that second movie before sunset ends with this moment of Jesse deciding that he's just going to leave his, his wife and, and child and stay in France with Celine. Um, Not a very practical decision exactly this movie is more interested in the practice practicality and to be fair um before midnight obviously gets into sober is that yeah what does that what what are the actual yeah. effects of that decision now nine years later um so i don't mean to be smirched the name of the before trilogy in any way i would never it's the greatest yeah. trilogy of all time. can't believe you're such a hater jeez yeah but this movie something different which i think is a good thing is yeah. a very good thing because we already have the before trilogy we don't need that again um and like you say it is i think exploring you know something more practical and exploring sort of like you say the the ripple effect of these connections that we have in our lives and it's exploring it through this korean idea that comes up throughout the movie of inyon um which are sort of these um past individual events yeah that happen in your life it can be something as faint as um something as insignificant seemingly as like brushing against somebody on the street is how it's described in the movie um but the basically you know all of these in yon are combining to um bring about where you know the life that you are meant to have basically and um specifically in the context of relationships it talks about you know it takes thousands and thousands of inyon for you to find the the right person right so um it's kind of interrogating how these connections in our lives can still be important even if they don't necessarily have sort of the hollywood you know ending hollywood romance like again it's not what you would expect to see from if you've seen if you're, if you're thinking about something like the before trilogy necessarily um, yeah it's it's totally grounded in this sort of notion of missed connections right the these exactly what you're describing these like fleeting moments and inyon is this is this concept that gives those moments real meaning just maybe not in in this life in a previous one or the potential for a future one 
Um, yeah, it's it's very interesting. Also interesting how it's also sort of it's sort of the the idea itself and and its role in society and Korean culture is almost it's both sides of the coin are used. I feel like one, it's like yeah, this is a stupid silly cultural joke that we make to seduce men. Like you know, she's when she's talking to Arthur, which is John McGarrow's character. She and then yeah. I thought, and, but then used much more seriously in the third act when talking to Sung. Right. Well, I thought a lot about that moment because I, I don't think she actually believes that. I guess is kind of the conclusion that I arrived at. The whole that it is a silly, stupid thing just said to seduce men. Like I think she she does deeply believe in this concept. I think that's eventually revealed over the course of the movie, and it's one of the main reasons that she makes the decision that she does towards the end of the movie because it may not be fully what her heart is telling her that she wants in that moment but the fact that all of the inyan have led her to that moment is something right it is something significant and you know that part of her she she doesn't even though she's you know been an american for many years at this point that part of her that korean part of her you know cultural identity and her connection to this idea of inyon doesn't just go away with that um and so it does mean something to her even though it but it's something more complicated than just the like again traditional hollywood love romance all of that and there's one scene in particular where she and john mcgarro have this sort of conversation where he is expressing again sort of the that pure sincere love right um very vulnerable like you would yeah. you would see in like a rom-com um and then she is not reciprocating that because her feelings are more complicated um so i she or she i mean she is reciprocating it in some ways but not necessarily in the exact same manner in which she is doing it or yeah. in a way that to us, the audience may be the most satisfying way. Like I saw this movie with my girlfriend and she was saying, Oh, like that basically that she had treated him very badly in that scene and, and was, you know, um, was not showing him the sort of affection basically that a good partner should which is certainly one way of looking at it. Um, but I think there's, you know, again, the cultural identity part of it adds some complicated layers to this and this this notion of inyan and fate. Um, and I just really liked how complex, ultimately, I felt the emotions in the movie ended up being and that it does refuse cliche in, in all of these moments. Um, so, I mean, that's getting into specifics a lot on some it's really hard not to though i mean i i struggled so hard even with the introduction to be like i had this version that was typed out that was way more detailed and i'm like what if i can just like isolate like the the structure of the film and describe it because it's really hard like once you start talking about it like you just got to talk about all the details it's just so hard not to i think your point of i mean just because we're talking about inyan i think it could be the case where both things are true she she didn't really believe it as more than this sort of like you know spiritual cultural bs when she's 24 trying to hook up with this cute guy at a writer's retreat um but 12 years later with a lot more life experience and staring dead in the face of 
you know, a connection from, you know, multiple decades prior that is not destroying her life, but she recognizes as an individual whose presence and the emotional connection she has to this person, like, can really disrupt the delicate balance that she has created in New York City with Arthur and with her career. And it's something that not to not to the exact same extent, but it's something that she recognized when she was 24. And she, you know, I was talking about that, that sort of second act, that second sort of interval um, in the film reminded me a lot of normal people. I mean, the whole the whole end of that of that sort of trajectory of, of their relationship, their virtual, you know, Skype driven relationship is that they kind of love each other, but they can't be together, which is, you know, which is essentially the ultimate you know, thesis of, of normal people at the end of that relationship. Spoilers for normal people as well, I suppose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but I, I found it so interesting then to sort of transition into that third act where, you know, a, over a decade has gone by and she's a very different person after that. And I think that's, you know, when, when you're sort of faced with with the some, you know, some fundamental truths in life, I think it's really hard not to not to really mature and evolve in the things that you believe in. And I think the Inyan is something that she probably does. I, I, that's at least how I read it. I don't, I don't know if that resonates at all with you, but I, I kind of a, am of the mindset that she kind of did believe that when she was 24 and she had changed or her beliefs had changed, you know, by the time she was meeting Sung again, you know, in New York city. I don't know. It's, uh, it's a, it's a beautiful met like intense pool of emotions the film and i think that's you're talking about like it really ramps up into that third act and yeah it, it really does like i found the second act pretty compelling so maybe i was engaged a little bit earlier than you were just because i really felt a lot of similarities and that to to normal people um which is like still maybe just one of the most remarkable things i've ever seen in my life um and then the third act really like this just the absolute intensity of yeah. the third act, just like totally, it reminded me a lot of Portrait of a Lady on Fire and like the level of emotional intensity you feel watching that film reminded me of Drive My Car, not a romantic film or not in the same way, at least, but like the the emotional intensity that that builds. Because it's not, yeah, yeah. The, the difference is a lot of it in Drive My Car is a lot through dialogue, but this movie is not using a lot of dialogue. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. But you know, there's ob obvious both plot and thematic differences in in some of these in the in these sort of reference points that I'm that I'm laying out. Mm -hmm. But just yeah, I I thought like the first act is is sort of a you know you're laying the bricks to be able to tell the story that the second and third acts have to offer. Yeah, it's like kind of like they're kids. It's sad. One's leaving. It sucks because they have this sort of like budding relationship that maybe could be a romance one day. But, you know, it's there's no real in my opinion, I didn't really find there to be much juice, so to speak, in that in that act. But, yeah, I mean, the, the second, the, so, you know, when they're 24, when they're 36, I just found Greta Lee just so compelling as an act, like as a performance, to be honest. Like, I thought she was an absolute, you know, force of nature in this film. Everything that you're describing around just now, like the lack of dialogue, she she brings that. 100% like her chemistry both with Teo Yu and John Magaro I think is just a real landmark of this film like the way that she's able to just sort of like so fluidly pick back up with this person 
like, yeah, there's always that sort of initial, like, oh, I'm seeing you for the first time in 24 years. There's like that initial awkwardness, but like, it just sort of, she's able to just like let it dissolve around her. And the way she's able to sort of just go through that, you know, that trip with that Heisun is on, but then also flip back and have this rapport and this balance with Arthur, her husband. And, you know, it, on screen, as we are there, like he is trying to like profess his love and insecurity about the situation that they are in, um, specifically as it relates to his position being vulnerable as, as this sort of, you know, husband to the woman who is being reunited with a former lover, essentially. And in response, she's just like, I don't, I don't know. I'm feeling so many things. I just don't know what to do with all of them. But that doesn't mean that I don't, you know, love you. And this isn't the relationship that we're in and meant to be, you know, meant to have. And I just, I just found that like her ability to channel that performance over the second and third acts of the film. Um, I just found it really moving, frankly. And I think all three performances are really strong, but hers is sort of leads, leads the way. And yeah, it really did create a real special, uh, a really special film. Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to zero in on her performance, I think, although all three of them are are really strong. I will say I thought John Magaro is really excellent. Like, I think yeah. he's he's carving out a niche as a character actor that I'm really here for. Um, obviously, you know, he did have more of a lead in, in First Cow, I guess, but, you know, very low-key movie. And then sure. um, showing up, I thought he was definitely one of the highlights of the supporting cast from showing up. Um, Kelly Wright's right? recent movie, yes. Um, so he's really, he's, you know, showing up another 2023 movie technically. Um, and so she, he's really like having a year for himself. I don't know if he's going to be in anything else, but um, could be, he could, could walk away with the year um, when all is said and done, but um yeah Gretely, Powell, buddy yeah maybe but Gretely, you know i think it's hard to talk about her performance without talking about that last scene um yeah because sure. she does so much and again talking about the the lack of dialogue talking about the tension it all comes out there and her performance is really guiding us through that because um you know spoiler alert i guess at this point they're just standing there on the sidewalk. Like that's a large majority of this scene. And like, again, I was on the edge of my seat. Like I was legitimately on the edge of my seat because you don't know what is going to happen. And, you know, the the body language, everything I had, that's the stuff that reminds you of the before trilogy in a way, because they're so good at using the body language and things like that in the movie to convey the emotions and, like she's like slightly leaning towards him. They turn, you know, they can sort of like turn to face each yeah. other at a certain point. It's like we really don't know what's about to happen. It's um, all one tracking shot, too, right? They they never cut, I believe. Yeah, yeah. They pan a, when, they pan along the sidewalk. Walks, yeah, it pans yeah. with her, or they yeah. dolly the sidewalk. I guess technically, um, I don't know. My and then yeah, goes. when she does finally walk away after he's left, the emotion that like she was holding in, you know, it overcomes releases. her. um just yeah phenomenal acting in that moment and so many others in the movie um i don't have a bad thing to say about the cast um but again i thought 
I do want to give some respect to John Begara because I thought sort of the soft-spoken. Yeah. I don't know what the the other word I'm looking for here is to his performance. I think he's he's supportive, but he's vulnerable. He's supportive, but like he's insecure. Yeah, and who wouldn't be? He's like, I don't know if I don't know if I believe you all the time that you say that you love me. Like, that's what he tells her in that that one scene in the the bedroom. In the bed. I mean, yeah, that as much as as powerful and as almost emotionally explosive, it's the same as that sort of moment in Drive My Car where the lead character who has name I can't remember off the top of my head right now uh, finally breaks down when they're, you know, visiting the child at home of the woman that's driving him around his chauffeur when he sort of finally just breaks down and talks about his wife. I mean, that that scene is to me, it felt very similar uh, in terms of sort of the emotional catharsis of it. The scene that you're describing in the bedroom is actually, I mean, to me, that almost felt like this. It's the scene I've thought the most about. It's not the, it's not the showiest. It is still a big scene in the movie, but it's the scene that has sort of stuck with me the longest because, you know, something that John Magaro's character says in that is, you know, sort of just the thing that stuck with me as I left the theater. I think he says something along the lines like, you make my life so much bigger. And I'm just wondering if I do the same for you. And like that is just like that that sort of sums up his character right that sums up the sort of vulnerability and the insecurity of his character and frankly although it's not it's not an idea that's totally fully explored in the film but i think sort of fits right alongside the notion of inyun if you think about all these things where these these incidental encounters leading up in past lives leading up to this sort of you know this this grand you know connection in a future you know in this in this sense in a future life I feel like this notion of, of is it possible for, you know, his great love, like this, this soul's great love to be this, but their partners, something different. I think that sort of notion of, of imbalance in a relationship is something that Inyan doesn't speak directly to, but feels really at, at, you know, in partnership with that idea. And I just found that scene in the bedroom between the two of them sort of halfway through the third, like after his hey Sung's first day or night or whenever they were together in New York, I just found it to be, I don't know, just brutal, just like a really brutal scene. And this is, you know, also, again, the scene I was alluding to where he's talking about, oh, hey, if this was the movie or whatever, this was the, the Hollywood movie, this is the romantic movie or whatever. Yeah. I'm the guy that gets left behind, right? Uh, y- you go off with, with Sung because that's the romantic thing to do. Um, so that's, again, his insecurities playing on him. But it's also, you know, uh, Celine Song reframing the, you know, what our, our expectations, I guess, in a way, for this sort of movie, because, um, like, I don't know about you, Scott, but I was certainly hoping that she would stay. Um, like, that's kind of where my sympathies lied. And sure lay in the end and obviously it's a little bit more complicated than that um i think but, she should love both of them there's someone else out there yeah. for her, you know <laughs> um i think she's you know reframing it in a way because even though what john mcgarra's character says here is probably true it's like well no he's the one who is he, he you know he follows it up by saying that line that you're you're mentioning like my life feels bigger with you and you know, that's that's just like the one of the more simple concepts. I feel like that's 
expressed in the movie. Like, you know, you're sitting there, you hear that and it's like, yeah, like that's, that's what love is. Right. Like he's, he's kind of just said it right there and she is not doing the same thing. Right. Like she is, cause it's so much more complicated for her. All that she can really say is, um, you know, I am where I am meant to be. Right. Yeah. And she does say, I love you, but it's, again, it's not with that sort of. So it's not, it's know. not as much conviction. Exactly. And so um, it's, it's difficult. There's, there's so many dynamics going on here again. It, it is, it's so beautifully played and written this scene in particular. I mean, I, I, it is the standout scene in the movie for me because I feel like just all the concepts that the movie is interested in exploring are, you know, threading together here in this scene. Yeah, it really does come down to those two scenes for for me. It's like those are the two big moments in the third act. Obviously, their their reunion and when they meet in the park is is a is a big scene, but it it doesn't really live. It doesn't quite reach the emotional height of of the two scenes we're talking about. I think the other one we're just talking about scenes in the third act is when they're at the bar. It's actually the scene the film opens course, with yeah. from a certain perspective. And then later on in the film, you get the scene from, you know, the perspective of Arthur and Nora and Sung, as opposed to this couple who's like watching them in the bar. And I know it's got like this is sort of situated between the two scenes that we were just describing. You know, it's before Sung and Nora are on the sidewalk waiting for him to get in his Uber. And it's after they, she has this conversation and. There's no it's not like a specific line or moment, at least it wasn't for me in this in this scene. But obviously, the thing that sticks out is just like, especially in the longer form of the scene, that when you get it in the sort of in continuity with the rest of the, the film, you really see how just like not in the conversation Arthur is like he is just there. And there is dialogue happening. But to one of the things that you're saying earlier, it's like, None of the dialogue, like none of what they are saying matters. It is the fact that they are talking and he is there. Uh, and in I a think language that, that he doesn't understand. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, what do you do? Right. Like you can't if you're Nora, you can't really translate the whole conversation for hours or whatever to your husband, mm-hmm. Arthur. But if you're Arthur, you can't be like, hey, you want to include me in this conversation? And, and I think that's one of the beauties of, of the Arthur character. I mean, it's sprinkled throughout all of the third act. But there's this constant refrain that, like, I'm not going to be the guy who tells you you can't go and see yeah. and meet up with this person who you grew up with, who was your, and, you know, your first your first love or whatever. And the culmination of that is, like, in this scene that when he and Haysug finally have a moment together, he, like, basically tells him, you did the right thing by coming here, right? Yeah. Even though he understands that. Sung came here because he is still in love with Nora and presumably wants to steal her away or, you know, whatever that may look yeah, like. Yeah, maybe not so specific as that, but like mm-hmm. the notion is to see if there is still something between them. That is the point of coming. Yeah, and yet he still says to him, you did the right thing. I found that to be such an interesting line and definitely one of the ones I was still kind of thinking about after the movie let you know, what exactly did he mean when he said that, right? Um, well, what do you make simply, of it? Is it simply like, uh, if I was in your situation, I probably would have done the same thing? Um, like, maybe that's 
kind of where he's coming from. Or, um, or slightly differently put, if I was in your situation, I hope that I would do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Follow your heart, I guess. I mean, it's one of those things where it's clear that certainly between the second and third act, it's something that he has been obsessed with. Like, obviously, we don't get that level of detail, but the, the second act sort of concludes with Nora meeting Arthur at this writer's camp and him meeting a woman in China when he goes on his language exchange trip. But, you know, we don't know it's the same person, but I think the implication is that like he's been with this woman that he met on his exchange program in China on and off for 12 years and feels dissatisfied with that because there is this idea in his head about Nora and about the, you know, the missed connection that the two of them had both when they were young, but also when they were 24 and reconnected briefly. And I think that, you know, that that's like, that is the difference, right? Like he is still caught up in something he, you know, that, that let he left behind that Nora had identified as something that she could not let distract her from the life that she wanted. And he has been nothing but distracted by it. You know, he thinks you know, whether it is true or not, we don't know. But like he be- he believes himself to be an average Korean man with minimal prospects and is simply, a, you know, maybe obsessed is too strong of a word, but he is focused enough to want to save up money to spend on a three or four day at most trip halfway across the globe to meet a person who he has not seen for two and a half decades. Yeah, and like that's the difference between the two of them. That's another thing that is, you know, just sort of devastating about it in the end is that that second act, they don't, you know, cement their relationship. They, they, you know, sort of, or Nora makes the decision that they should stop talking to each other basically because they're not, neither one of them is going to abandon what they're doing to physically, so that they can physically be together. Yeah. Because to them at that point in time, that is the most important thing, right? Like their pursuit of whatever it is that they're doing. In in Haysung's case, it's going to China, right? And yeah. in Nora's case, it's pursuing her writing career. I mean, there's this recurring bit about what is her aspiration, right? She wants to win the Nobel Prize and then like when she's a kid and then, you know, that... Uh, that that descends to the Becomes Pulitzer, a Pulitzer, yeah, and then, it's... and then it descends to a Tony yeah. um, when she's yeah. when she's oldest, and I think that kind of speaks again to this again. What one of the things that makes it so devastating, which is that they thought this was the most important thing at the time. Now, as the older the older they get, the their professional lives have taken a back seat seemingly and and they they kind of are thinking about the fact that you know what if we had we had done this at the time like it it seems more important now basically i guess is what i'm what i'm trying to say because yeah that their aspirations that they had like again of winning a pulitzer were were not realistic and they couldn't see that she couldn't see that in the moment she somewhat understands it now but it's too late to do anything about it, right? Yeah, I think that's one of the great questions that there's no concrete answer to, and it's obviously going to be a matter of, you know, viewer's opinion. But do you... I think it's... It's not clear to me that their contemplation of what could have been 
is necessarily regret for decisions that they've made. And I'm curious if you feel like at the end of the film, either either or both Sung and Nora regret that decision that you're describing. It's not clear to me that they do. Maybe, I mean, my instinct would say Sung probably regrets it more than Nora does. I mean, Nora, I think, is is clearly emotionally um, affected by what could have been. But that's not to say that she believes she made the wrong decision 12 years before. And I'm curious what your take is on that. No, I agree. I I just think that that is part of the journey to arriving at where they are at the end. And yes, I agree with you. I think if anything, what Nora feels like is gratitude right in the end, because she's appreciating the the fact that her inyan allowed her to intersect with this person, right? Sure. With Heisung, who has added a lot to her life. But ultimately, he is not the person to do the, you know, to, to be waiting for her at the end of that 8,000, you know, inyan combination or whatever that has to happen for you to find the person that. Or maybe this was the 8,000 and the next and the next life is the one. And that's what he says when he's getting in the, the exactly. Uber, which again, that's yeah. that's one of those great, you know, sort of mic drop lines there when he's like, he gets in the Uber and says, see you then is the last thing he says. It's like, I'm going to see you in the future, right? And this is going to have been our past live, right? Like this, this, this is moment the here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you didn't think he just meant like, we'll see you then. Like you just like a casual. No, I don't think that's what he meant. Um, no, okay, interesting. I guess that's one of the things about subtitles is we don't know the emphasis he was putting there, but um, yeah, I don't think that's that's what it was. Um, it wasn't just a casual salutation. Yeah. So I think she, you know, again, I think what she appreciates in the end is she's thankful for the person that she is at this point in her life, and she recognizes that the inyan has allowed her to meet both of these people that have enriched her lives in different ways one of them romantically the other in something more complex in, in a more complex way yeah so do you do you believe in inyan now or is that is that going to be your vibe um maybe not like the nuances of it but like I don't know the the general idea of like uh-huh you know fate whatever leading you to the person in life that you're meant to be with and live I'm not going to say Are I you worried that you that. haven't had 8000 lives prior enough to actually experience <laughs> true love with someone like you're just you just got to be alone in this life you haven't met enough Well you that's what I say misconnections that's what i mean when i say maybe i don't believe in the nuances of it i think uh, (laughs) that might be a bit much but um, there is truth in it i think yeah no i think that's that's fair i mean mean, one of the beauties about the sort of in yun of it all in the film and you know leaving aside those nuances that you're describing is this it really does add a, a spiritual element to the film and I'm sorry for being maybe annoying and, and continuing to draw connections to the same movies, but I feel like drive like that's such a huge part of drive my car as well. It's not ever really explicitly stated, but there's just like so much like spirituality. I feel like in that, in that character where he's having to wrestle with like the, essentially the, the, the ghost of his wife that is sort of haunting him, right? Like this whole notion that he, 
his stories that he was telling and his like she was his muse all these things sort of built up in it and there's the spirituality component to it for me of of when he just becomes so overwhelmed by everything and i think that's a that's maybe an even more explicit and big part of of this movie like obviously because inyan is you know once it gets introduced and the end of the second act it becomes sort of a focal point for that that at least that at least nora identifies as being a source of a lot of her emotion um and the nuance that you're describing throughout so yeah it just is great really sort of is interesting in that respect we've spent and i i think most people who talk about this movie are going to spend a lot of time thinking and talking about the third act but should we try to spend more specific time on anything in act one or two like what what did you think of of we haven't really talked at all about when they're kids and in korea you mentioned earlier on that you weren't you were you were engaged but you weren't necessarily as gripped yet that early on in the film i definitely share that i think i wasn't really grabbed until the second act when the sort of the connection starts to unfold a little bit when they're apart but what did you think of that first act in the moment, yeah, it wasn't like gripping like you're saying, but there are, you know, a few things that happen that like I think pay off really well by the time sure. the movie is over. Like yeah. the mom has a the mom has a line where she's talking about them moving and she says, When you leave something behind, you gain something too. Um, that I think, you know, is really there's a lot of foreshadowing um for, you know, Nora's own situation. Um, like the the thrust of the movie in that in that line there and then just some of the the cuts that happen in the third act like honestly there's one that kind of like took my breath away in the third act when they're standing there i believe it's when they're standing there at the end and it just like cuts to a sec for a second back to them as kids standing on the stairs um yeah the, where they're going the separate place. way like she, like he mm-hmm. he or she is climbing up the stairs i think it's she's climbing up the stairs and he's walking yeah. along the path yeah i thought that was just like again kind of emotionally devastating moment um so it comes back around and pays off in some some nice ways um you know maybe in the moment it just kind of feels like set up for what is to come yeah the, the, there's that payoff i think there's also a moment where I, I wondered if if the first act was going to be drawn out a little bit more. There's there's this sort of towards the end, they have this play date. I mean, there's no better real way to describe it other than they have this like play date in this park, which I believe is another scene that they, they cut back to and pay off in the third act when they're like climbing on the different. They're not monuments, but like it's like the, it's like these stone. I don't even know what they are, like. Sculptures that they're like climbing yeah. on. Yeah. And. Yeah, I wondered for once it started going that direction, I wondered like, man, they, they know that they're moving or at least like the parents know that they're moving. I'm curious what they're trying to do here. Um, that didn't totally get paid off, but I, I think it does start to bridge the gap between, you know, when you jump forward 12 years and, you know, the manner in which, you know, Nora even rediscovers and reconnects with Hey Sung is him you know, on Facebook in like messaging other people or posting other people's walls from when they were young, like when her classmates from, from that time in Korea and asking if anyone had seen, I forget her, Na Young, I think is her Korean name, Mm -hmm. not realizing that she's changed her name to Nora. And I, I, 
that sort of like as like that as a, a device or mechanism to reconnect like this conversation with your parent reminiscing on these times like times like that like that specific scene probably right it's not explicitly mentioned but it's like one of those things and you know they're talking about like her grades because she was a very brilliant student and he and she it was clear that the two of them like competed in in, in grades and stuff like that I, I do think that the notion that you're sort of alluding to around like it it, it paints a lot of color for something that maybe doesn't get like fully appreciated until act two or act three. I think that's, I think that's true of like a lot of little details in act one. And, you know, I think it, I think it works out really well. And, and, you know, maybe one of the reasons why I like act two so much is, is the manner in which they do end up reconnecting. And, you know, I, I remember this is not, obviously not the same because I'm not from Korea and I wasn't in a relationship with someone who's in Korea uh, at the time. But I remember summer after my freshman year in college, I, I was dating someone who would, who like went back to the West coast, like went back to Seattle um, for the, for the summer. And we, it's a three hour time difference. It's not 12 hours what they were doing or whatever it is. Um, but I, I, I remember feeling like all I want to do is talk to this person and I will do stupid things like stay up until like four or 5 AM Eastern yeah. time when I need to like do work the next day. Um, and you can feel that like the detracting from like everything else that you're doing. And I just found a lot of, you know, connection to that story that was sort of being told. Obviously, it wasn't to the same extent that it was being told. In it, and I didn't, you know, that was a fixed period of time. It was two or three. It was like two months, right? Like, it's not like it's in perpetuity, which is the real reason why Nora feels like she has to break things off. But I, I just feel like the 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 writing and the narrative and the story there is so is it did feel so relatable because you can just sort of feel yourself getting lost in something that has like really negative consequences for the other things that are important to you in your life. And, and that, yeah, that, that really well. That's the thing. It doesn't even really show you what else is going on in their lives at this point. Like we know yeah. Nora is, she wants to be a writer, but you know. yeah, she's doing something with her writing and Hey Sung is in school. Right. Cause he just finishes um, his military service in Korea. So yeah. he, was, he was in, I think he was in, I think he was in college at the time. Yeah. It's like at this point in their lives, the moments, which like, matter to them and which are like the things that define their every day are like when they are talking to each other on that computer screen so those are the only things that we see totally yeah yeah i think that i think that's i think that's spot on and yeah just like i was saying on that personal level i felt i really felt how i felt the truth in that experience and then the pain right as nora recognizes that she can't she can't do both things. She can't both be with Sung in the way that she's able to be virtually with these video calls and be, you know, a successful, be a, a successful writer or, or focus as much on her writing as she wants to be. It's, it's very similar, you know, again, to go back to normal people when, um, you know, w- when they are separate, like when, when he's still in Dublin and she is in Sweden or whatever, and they're spending like there's scenes of them just spending all night together on video calls. Right. And to the detriment of, you know, his health to Connell's like performance and well-being in school, like it's, it's taking it away from him. I just, yeah, I just think stuff like that is just so relatable. And you, you talk about how maybe it has more, re- more similarities to nor to normal people than maybe it does to the before trilogy. And these people are not young. Like these people are not the age of, you know, our age or Connell and Marianne's age from normal people. Um, 
but I feel like the experiences that they are portraying in the film are modern experiences. Like normal people felt like sort of like a, like a, a very landmark depiction of, you know, quote unquote, like modern, you know, millennial Gen Z love. And even though these, these individuals are a little bit older, it feels like a very modern portrayal of, of the struggles that these two had, you know, in the mid, in the mid, in the mid 2010s. Um, and maybe that's why it's slightly different. Whereas like you have the before trilogy where they meet one time in a European city and then they like, don't see or speak to each other ever again for nine years. Like that's not how yeah. modern relationships work. Um, and that's not, that's not a complaint against those movies. It's just a reality of, of the differences between, you know, the, those, those works of art and this work of art. And yeah, I think that maybe that's why it feels closer to something like normal people. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Kind of like I was saying at the start of the review. Yeah. All right. Anything else you want to talk about for past lives? I feel like we we weren't all over the place, but we really jumped straight in. And was there anything yeah. that you wanted to talk about zooming out a little bit before we wrap things up? I did, I think the movie is really, really well directed. You know, I mentioned some of the moments like the, you know, the cutting um, that I felt that some of the some of the cuts that I felt were really effective. I also think the way that certain scenes are framed, like there's a scene where she has just seen, after she has seen Hei Sung for the first time when he comes back, um, when he comes to America, mm-hmm. they she's back at the house talking to John McGarrow and she's like in the bathroom Brushes. and he's in the kitchen or whatever. The way it's framed is like, you cannot tell if there's like a wall in between them or not. It's like, yeah. You, the distance like your depth perception is like off basically you cannot tell exactly what their distance is and it's like conveying that they are both close and far apart in this moment because this is also when he's asking her like oh is he attractive now all this stuff about <laughs> you know hey son right, um, right. and she is like having to to be honest with him and um and say yes and so it's like yeah it's kind of like you know, there's just like a, a vague something vaguely unsettling about their dialogue there, even though they're both they both seem to be kind of, you know, chill, unbothered by what's going on. Um, but I just thought visually, too, that they that was a really clever way to do that. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I also want to say one thing. I, I was fortunate enough to see this very early um, in its first weekend of release in New York, including a, that that included a Q&A with. Celine Song and John Magaro. And I think one of the really interesting bits that came out of that Q&A was talking about how they contrived the production. So like they they went well and truly out of their way to make sure that John Magaro and Teo Yu did not meet before the bar scene was filmed. They never wow. interacted with each other. So all those scenes that they were shooting, like they would shoot blocks of scenes you know, for days between Greta Lee and Teo Yu and then Greta Lee and John Magaro. And then there was this like sort of crescendo, you know, verite moment of of John Magaro, Arthur meeting Teo Yu in that bar scene. Um, or I don't know if it was the bar scene or if it was the scene where he like he comes to the house. He comes to the uh, bar, yeah. Which, whichever, well, whichever one they filmed for. I don't remember which one they filmed for, mm-hmm. but like that day is the first day they they meet in real life that's which i think is like a cool tidbit um Mm -hmm. you know i don't i don't know how much that it's impossible to know how much that would change the movie if they had some sort of rapport or whatever but i think it really i can see how that would enhance the 
the art of these two people who don't speak the same language, you know, in the movie, don't speak the same language, can't really communicate with each other and are meeting each other for the first time. Like, I mean, that scene, we didn't talk about it, but like that scene when he comes, it's like after the second day that they spend and he comes over and they're going to go to dinner and whatnot. Like he comes over, like he, you know, you got John McGarrow, like in the kitchen or whatever, or in the living room. I'm not sure which it was just sort of like looking like a complete ball of anxiety as they open the door and he like refuses to turn and look at the door. He's like, so, so ridden with anxiety about yeah. it. And I, I can really see how that would, it, it just sort of allows you to very naturally feel the anticipation of meeting someone, obviously in the movie, someone you're probably dreading to meet. And, you know, in the performance as, you know, you know, outside of the film as someone who you're really excited to like have a scene with. And I think that yeah. that's something that works really, really well. I thought it was a cool detail of the production of the movie. Definitely. I did not know that. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, funny, funny. As we wrap up, funny stories that um, I when I saw this movie, I looked at the runtime in my screening, and it said like two hours and twenty minutes, and I'm like, why is this movie two hours and twenty minutes? Like, yeah, that's not good. But they were including nope. the Q and A time. Q and A. But no, like we're getting, <laughs> but we're getting to you know the last scene of the movie, or like the, the penultimate scene of the movie, the scene that we're talking about when they're walking along the side of the street and they're going to the Uber, and I'm like man, I don't fucking know how there's 30 minutes left in this movie <laughs> at this point. And then like the credits fell, I'm like, oh, okay, okay, okay. But that was that was a funny experience thinking that, that there was like 30, 30 minutes left in the film still. Sure. Um, but that was not the case, obviously. All right. Past lives. Favorite scene or moment? We've talked it's... about all the big scenes. I mean, we've talked about them all. We didn't talk about yeah, the merry round, had... actually, I guess. Yeah, we didn't. But, you know, again, for me, it's the scene with the two of them in bed with John Magaro and Greta Lee. I just think the dialogue there um, and the differences in the characters that we see just says says everything about what this what this movie's about. Yeah, I totally agree. I I even mentioned it earlier that as, as explosive emotionally as that final, you know, climactic, emotionally speaking scene is, I, I do think it comes down to that scene in the bedroom for me maybe also speaks to why we're both like you can't you can't go with him you have to stay with this guy and it's not even you know it's not even the notion of like she's treating him poorly that's not really how i thought about this film at all i mean i do understand where that perspective might come from but the new like he's like you said earlier the the nuance there is so deep and i think that you really you see the multitudes um in that scene of both how it's affecting her, but also how it's affecting, you know, her, her partner. So it's, um, yeah, it's a really moving scene. And, you know, as, as I mentioned, when we talked about that quote around, you know, you make my life bigger, that very simple, so much bigger, that very simple sort of idea that, that it sort of captures so much about at least Arthur's character's experience of love and how it's not so simple. Yeah. I just think it's beautiful. I just really think it's beautiful stuff. All right. Out of 10, what are you giving past lives? 9.3. Really, really good. Definitely one of the year's best. Yeah, I'm up there with you. I'm at, I'm at 9.2. So, you know, not very far off of, of what you were saying. It, it's just one of those movies, right? That's just going to, it sticks with you for all. Like I saw this, I mean, at this point, like I saw this movie like three, f- four weeks ago. And I still, you know, I still remember. It feels like I still remember all the details Yeah, of the film, even though I only saw it once. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to revisit in the past. Scott, as we wrap up and, you know, and go into part two, I do need to ask you, like, did you text any of your exes or former crushes after the <laughs> film to see what happens? 
Absolutely not. No. Okay. Zero yeah. interest in that. <laughs> that's, that's a shame. That's too bad for you. Oh, well. Uh, crazy stuff also in this Q&A about like Celine Song saying people coming up to her after the film premiered at Sundance saying like, I just texted my ex or whatever, like during the credits after watching this movie, this was so moving. Um, but then I think also a lot of people being like, this is such an incredible experience. I would never like basically what you're describing, like not interested at all. Like I yeah. would ever. So yeah. it's so fascinating how like you can have such a powerful experience with the film, but like come up with like not the opposite takeaway because the takeaway is not the right way to put it, but like have the opposite response. Yeah. Like when you leave the theater, <laughs> like what you're doing with with the experience. Yeah, I think that's pretty powerful, honestly. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, Q&A's. I'd recommend them if you have the chance. Anyway, <laughs> that should do it for our discussion of past lives. We'll take a short break. We'll come back with part two where we're going to be talking about Neon's acquisition of a certain Michael Mann film and the news about Trey Edward Schultz's next movie collaborating with The Weeknd. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As I mentioned before the break, we have a couple pieces of news to talk about. First, the acquisition of Michael Mann's long-awaited new film, Ferrari. Scott, tell us about that. Yeah, no, this is definitely a movie that we have talked quite a bit about. I believe it probably came up on our most anticipated episode. Got Um, it. But yeah, I believe you brought it up. This is um, the first film from Michael Mann in... A while. Seven years, I believe. I'm trying to think when Black Hat came out. I, I think, think it was 2016, 2016. yeah. I think, I yeah. think it was 2016. Um, but it is, a, it is a biopic of Enzo Ferrari in which uh, in which Adam Driver will be assuming the title role of Ferrari. Um, so we, we've known that much for a while. We've known that it was likely to release this year. And that has seemed, seems even more likely now with the news that Neon has acquired... Uh, this film and that it is looking like it will premiere at the Venice Film Festival in the fall and then get a wide release on Christmas Day. Um, So it's shaping up to be a big major awards contender, obviously, for this year. And um, I think Neon's acquisition is only going to help that, right? Um, We've talked a lot about Neon the last few years. Um, and their growing profile. Obviously, they're probably still not quite as much of a household name as like A24 is in terms of like these independent distributors. But, but they've won three or four Palm Doors in a row now, right? So Right. Their, their pedigree is arguably more impressive with the films that they have been able to acquire. And they also have one best picture with Parasite, Parasite. just yeah. as um, A24 has. So um and yeah like you said they've had a lot of success with with can and with the palm door winners um this has got to be one of the biggest profile projects that they've ever had um you know even with what i'm saying with um with neon growing a lot and being you know this studio that presumably um creators want to work with because they have success have had success in the awards um awards 
world despite letting their creators seemingly have a lot of freedom in making the types of movies that they want to make um and but um regardless um they have not really acquired a film with sort of the pedigree that this has right with with michael mann with adam driver with this very um buzzworthy subject matter like a big sort of old school hollywood biopic um is not really spencer would probably be the closest thing that they've had sure um but i just I, i mean i think the budget production value all of that is going to be a lot higher on this movie and sure than than spencer and then on any other movie that that neon um has released so um that it, it's it's an interesting bit of news in that regard um but i do think you know again it will be will be helpful in the that awards you know season which this movie is clearly again being targeted for a big awards play and i think neon has firmly established itself in that circle yeah no doubt i mean they obviously made a big splash in the indie scene in 2019 with parasite but also with portrait of a lady on fire and i think that's a film that has sort of endured a little bit since then as well i tanya probably be the other big project but they didn't i mean that was one of their first projects back in 2017 still probably not to your point probably not quite to the same degree of of scale i mean i don't know what the budgets are for these movies but i mean ferrari i mean i think the budget for that film is close to 100 million dollars so you would think yeah i'd imagine i mean spencer was probably about 40 or 50 million i could be wrong but i assume it's somewhere in that in that range like yeah a lot of budget obviously the film's done already you know they're they're not financing the film themselves they are acquiring it so and and that is how they've always operated i don't think that they've financed films from which is different um, from A24, but yeah, yeah. I mean, A24 does a bit of both these days. They produce a little bit more than they used to and finance and finance movies that way. But certainly starting out, they were they, they, they had a similar model starting out. But yeah, it's it's interesting. This is one of those films. I think it was my number five and most anticipated movies. And when I cited it, we were concerned it wouldn't be coming out that there was a possibility that it would not come out this year. But uh, I think it definitely will with the acquisition. I don't even, I don't know if it's been dated or not, but it seems like it will definitely be coming out this year with this news, which is great. I uh, love to see Adam driver back in Western central Europe. You know, if he's not going to be Gucci, he might as well be Ferrari. Um, sure. So he will be old man Ferrari. I take it. So that, that's really cool. And yeah, the fact that it's getting released by neon, it definitely raises the, prestige profile of it i mean michael mann obviously we're huge fans of him it's not like his movies have like you know since for at least for a while like it's not like they've had a huge amount of prestige behind them i mean obviously yeah big big budget films that are made for large audiences but i mean i'm trying to think of the last like really awardsy movie that he would have made i mean public enemies was kind of a flop like you know, sure. I mean, Black Hat was a flop too, wasn't it? I mean, but 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 Public Enemies on on paper is kind of the movie that you're talking about, the type of movie you're talking about. But critically, wasn't well received. I think it was released like pretty early in the year. Like I think it was like a March April release or something like that. It wasn't even, you know, ended up didn't even end up being a play for awards really. But uh, Black um, Hat was a June was a summer release, June July. I'm talking about 
public oh, sorry. enemies. I meant I said Black Hat, but also meant public enemies. Black Hat was 2015. Okay. Just kind of we were talking about that earlier. I mean, I guess probably the last really big awards movie was Ali, right? Like, is that the last yes. awards yeah. type movie that he would have done? Um, I, I mean, because Collateral might. I mean, well, I mean, Collateral was nominated for at least one Oscar because Jamie Foxx was nominated. So I mean, right, I just meant like it's that. not that movie's not really an awards play though. Yes, is, is more yes. what I mean. Yeah, I agree. Um. Anyway, exciting. Michael Mann's back, baby. It's been eight years. so It's about time. Hell yeah, brother. I mean, I guess, did you watch Tokyo Vice last year? I did I not. Know. Yeah, neither did I. Um, anyway. Yeah. Exciting. Less exciting news to go to our other news story, Scott. You know, on paper, Trey Edward Schultz, someone who we are both big fans of. I still remember the experience of watching waves and, and the camera techniques that he used in that, like still still lives rent free in my head. Some of the car, the car scenes of the way he spun the camera around just crazy stuff, but he has not made a film since waves in 2019. That itself, I believe was his second or third movie. I know he had, it comes at night. Does Cresha count and as Cre- a Cresha? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then this, this would be his, his fourth movie upcoming. It's been sort of long in, uh, in, in the cooker, I guess you could say. But there was some news released this past week um, talking about how uh, the weekend of, you know, recently uh, the idol fame or infamy, if you will, uh, will be co-writing Trey Edward Schultz's next film and also starring alongside Barry Keegan and Jenna Ortega. Scott, I've never just felt so... um, disappointed in a piece of news about a movie that otherwise like every other ingredient in this film <laughs> sounds great we're talking just Edward schultz writing and directing a film with barry keegan who's one of the hot young actors for at least for us on this podcast in hollywood and jenna ortega who I mean, maybe she hasn't always done projects that that we are dialed in on, but like the ones that she is in that we see, it seems like we're fans of. And then you're like, oh, and, and is a huge star like right now. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're going to introduce The Weeknd, who, you know, whether you're a fan of his music or not aside, came off a hot disaster of the idol where there are all these stories about how like, Sam Levinson reworked and rewrote the idol based on requests from the weekend. And it seems like nobody thinks that was cool. And, you know, leaving Sam Levinson aside, who I think is a whole different conversation about that. But like the idea that the weekend was like, no, Sam, I need you to do this. And then the idol was what we got. I haven't watched this. So I'm not going to pretend to know, but like, it seems like the consensus is like, Yikes, dude. Not not good. Um, so that worries me deeply that he's so heavily involved with Trey Edward Schultz's next movie. Scott, I don't know if you feel similarly. Yeah. Um, and even just, you know, again, uh, Trey Edward Schultz, obviously we are a fan of Waves. I think, honestly, though, if you look at that film now, it, it is kind of in the euphoria core sure. camp of stuff. I mean, it's literally like, got Alexa Demi in it. Alexa so. Demi in it, yeah you know, the soundtrack, the look of the movie, the, you know, subject matter. It's focusing on teenage characters. Um, There's a lot of similarities there. And, um, you know, again, you got two young 
you know, buzzworthy actors, just as in, you know, Waves, they weren't as big of a names as these two are, but, you know, you had Kelvin Harrison Jr., you had Taylor Russell, you had Alexa Demi, um, you Lucas know, you had this, too, right? so. yeah, you had this, yeah. this young buzzworthy cast. Um, it feels similar to Waves, and it feels similar in that regard then to Euphoria, which obviously, you know, is connected to the idol by um by sam levinson so maybe i'm drawing too many connections here you're seeing the, the ma- you're seeing the matrix when it's not there scott i don't know yeah <laughs> but um i hope that um the weekend has learned his lesson from the flop that the idol turned out to be and that um trey edward schultz perhaps is not as um easily influenced maybe as sam levinson seemed to be by um whatever was going on on set there with the weekend. Yeah. I don't know. I, I can't, I don't really have much more to share or thoughts because I didn't watch the idol. So I can't, I can't get into more specifics about it, but everything I saw about the show made me feel like I was not in the least bit interested in consuming that content. Um, so, you know, h- hard to speak further on the matter, but coming hot off of that and then be announced to be, to have co-written, and to be co-starring in Edward Schultz's next movie, you're right. There are similarities maybe in like the 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 subgenre of film that we're talking about here, the the contextual setting of the movie. Uh, I mean, given the age of Barry Keegan and Jenner Ortega, I'd imagine it won't be too far off that same category of film, just looking at the names on the on the page. But yeah, I find it um, you know, a little disappointing. And my expectations have maybe been tempered a little bit because of that. But I'm happy to be proven wrong and to come back around on it. Yeah. I mean, we always hope that the movies are good. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. I think that should do it for episode 243 of Some Like It, Scott. Any parting thoughts to leave us with? Uh, Guardians are 500 at the All-Star break. Uh, I'm not happy. Okay. Chance of getting in the playoffs. What do you think? Uh, still quite good because they're in first place despite being 500. That'll tell you a lot about their division. So, Yeah, that's also like kind of the American League this year, right? Like, Well, not the AL East. The, that's I true. think I'm pretty sure every team in the AL East has a better record than the, uh, yeah, the that's AL Central. That's a good point. And, and, you know, the AL West obviously has two very good teams at the top of the division, too, with the Rangers and the Astros. So You're right. It's just it's just the Central. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the NL Central is just as bad as the AL Central. So. Yeah. I mean, Cincinnati's like 10 games above 500, aren't they? They're, it, it won't last. It's yeah, the Reds. that's probably true. Yeah, they have way Mets, overperformed expectations. How about the Mets? Hey, they had a nice winning streak right before the All-Star break. Yeah. Are you joking? They're, they no. lost the last two games before the All-Star break. They won six in a row before that. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Can they turn it around? Probably not in that division. No, not in that division. Yeah. The Braves are crazy. A wagon, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, I, I was flying back from... Miami yesterday and I I was I, I popped on the home run derby um and no Braves in the home run derby for me to cheer for 
but uh, a lot of Braves on the sidelines for the All-Star game. I'll tell you that much. A lot of guys cheering on uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. That's it for Baseball Corner, I think. All right, Scott, where can people find you on socials? I am at Scarvey Dent on all platforms. And you can find me at, at shelton 2013 on Twitter, Letterboxd, etc. as well. Don't forget to also check out our podcast Patreon at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. If you can support us over there, we'd appreciate that. If not, that's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcast, where we'd love it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, etc., so that we continue to reach a broader audience. And finally, we really appreciate all of you taking time to listen to us chat about past lives. We'll be back next week with a big, big, big one. Tom Cruise is back to save another summer of cinema with the seventh Mission Impossible film. That is Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. We will hope that you join us for that next week. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.